Death in Denmark, brought to you by Crime Monthly Magazine. Episode 3. The Body in the Butcher's Top. Please note, this episode contains disturbing details of a real-life murder case. Some voices have been recorded by actors. Could you commit the perfect murder? Remove all evidence? Clean up and hide the body? And then hide overseas for so long that you could avoid punishment? That and a whole lot more are some of the things in this case from 1994. Fights in marriages are not unknown. Luckily, they often end in reconciliation and life goes on. But sometimes the story can have a completely different ending. In this episode of Death in Denmark, we look at one case that had a fatal ending. As you'll hear, interrogation techniques, forensic evidence, and lastly, a reconstruction of the incident became key elements to solving the case. The experts in this episode is former chief inspector at Unit 1, Kurt Krau, forensic pathologist Hans Peter Hogan, crime scene investigator Bent Hytholm Jensen, and lawyer Mette Gritsdage. My name is Dina Bolder. Welcome to the podcast Death in Denmark, told by some of the professionals who were closely involved with the case. It is one of the hottest summers in a long time. The sun is beating down and the Danes are cooling themselves off by the beach or by staying in the shade. Meanwhile, in an apartment in Northern Zealand, a horrible smell is hanging in the air. And even though all the windows are open, the smell gets worse. The young couple in the apartment search in boxes and closets for the source of the terrible stench. But with no luck, after 12 days, the smell becomes unbearable and they finally decide to open the door to the room they were explicitly told not to enter. In July 1994, a young couple found a dead body hidden in a borrowed apartment where they were staying for the summer. The case had connection as far away as Spain and wasn't solved until over a year after the horrible findings in the apartment. One of the people who had just finished his holiday at the time was Chief Inspector at Unit 1, Kurt Krau, who quickly was put on the case. It was Tuesday 26th of July 1994 and I just returned from a holiday in Italy. While drinking my first coffee that morning, my boss came to me and said that there had been a very unusual homicide and asked me to take the case and drive to the area as the local police were asking for an experienced homicide detective to take a look at the case. When I arrived, I was uh, given a brief summary of events. A 19-year-old girl and her boyfriend had borrowed her mother's apartment. They had stayed there for a couple of days and noticed a terrible smell. At one point, it had become unbearable for them to stay at the apartment, and they started looking for the cause of the awful smell. They searched the apartment, and among some furniture and boxes, they discovered a large plastic top. The couple pulled the lid off, and to their horror, they discovered a dead body inside. 
a dead body that was severely decomposed. The owner of the apartment, a woman, was in Spain, so it was not possible to take her in for questioning at the time. So we decided to go to the apartment in question, which was on the first floor. Four days had already passed since the body had been found, but even though all the windows were open, the entire apartment still smelled horrible. Walking around the apartment, we could see that there were bloodstains in different places. The crime scene investigators had examined the entire crime scene, but follow-up examination was still awaiting, so we went back to the station to get an overview of the case. After we had read all the case reports, we quickly decided that we need to talk to the woman who had discovered the body, the daughter of the woman who owned the apartment. She explained that she had been staying in her mother's apartment near Alicante in Spain. Here she had met a Spanish guy and they had fallen in love. She wanted to bring him to Denmark, so she asked her mother if she could borrow her apartment, but the mother said no. However, after some negotiations, her mother finally agreed on one condition that she wouldn't go into her mother's bedroom and go through her things. The daughter promised they wouldn't, and uh, she and her boyfriend flew to Denmark on the 19th of July. As soon as they opened the door to the apartment, they were met by the awful smell. After several days living in the stench, they had decided to look for the smell and had entered the mother's bedroom. The plastic top was well hidden under boxes and sheets. When they removed the lid which had been taped shut, there was no doubt in their mind as to what was in the top. They could immediately see a human body and straight away they called the police. The daughter had a very good idea of who the dead body was. The daughter explained to the police that almost four months prior to this, she and her mother had decided that they would go to their apartment in Spain. Her mother was very happy when she came to pick her up in her car on the 19th of March, but also disclosed that she had been having some issues with her husband. Apparently, he was upset about her going to Spain because they were in the middle of a debt settlement case and they didn't have a lot of money. They had a verbal and physical argument which had led to the mother leaving the apartment. The daughter noticed that her mother had bruises on her body but didn't think any more of it as the mother seemed fine and happy to be going to Spain. It was an interesting explanation and our suspicion towards the mother grew. Additionally, the police had spoken to the building's caretaker who told them that on the 17th of March, two days prior to the mother and daughter going to Spain, she had heard yelling and screaming as well as some bumps from the mother's apartment. The day after he bumped into the woman and she told him that she and her husband had had an argument and decided to get a divorce. One of the husband's colleagues were also interviewed. The husband hadn't shown up for work and the colleague had repeatedly tried to get in contact with him without any luck. So the colleague had also contacted the police, but at the time it was just treated as a disappearance. And you never know if an adult has just decided to begin a new life somewhere else. So nothing came of it at the time. While the police worked on making sense of the case and questioning everyone involved, crime scene investigators were contacted to examine the crime scene. The findings in the apartment led them to the conclusion that the homicide had taken place inside the apartment. Former crime scene investigator Bent Hydorm Jensen tells us about some of the evidence. When the crime scene investigators arrive to a crime scene, they meet the local police and then they take over the crime scene, at least until all the necessary evidence has been 
documented and collected on the crime scene. You start by documenting the crime scene through photographs. You photograph it from one end to the other, and then you draw a sketch and measure where the different things are placed, in this case in the apartment. In the beginning you never know what is important at a crime scene, so you document as much as possible. Some evidence might be extremely important and some evidence might not be important at this stage of the investigation. Blood stains were detected in the kitchen and in the entrance of the apartment. How do you examine blood stains? There are experts in the National Forensic Service that are trained to examine blood stains. From the shape and size of the blood stain, you can calculate the placement of the person or the body part that has been injured. Then you are able to presume whether the person was standing up or laying down, so on. It's a great tool to use. However, you never perform a blood stain pattern analysis before the rest of the examination. The reason why we are doing this later on in the investigation is because it not the blood pattern will not lead us to the perpetrator, but uh, we rather want to find some fingerprints and uh, DNA and shoe prints and other uh, kind of traces. You can always do the the blood pattern investigation afterwards. What are the differences in these blood stain patterns? A blood stain pattern analyst will typically look at the shape of the blood stain. If the pattern is circular, it's usually from a drip that has fallen onto the floor. They are usually completely round. The size of them determines at which height they have fallen from. The same goes for blood stain on a wall, for instance. You can calculate how fast the blood was traveling when it hit the wall and what force was used. What does that tell you then? Well, it tells us that if the blood stains are placed up high, the person was most likely standing up. If the blood stains are low on a wall, for example, the person was probably on their knees or completely on the floor. If they are circular, the person probably was standing up or on their knees. In some cases, there are blood stains from both offender and the victim, which you might be able to determine from the different patterns. With her heart beating out of her chest, she runs into the kitchen. They are fighting over their bad finances, the apartment in Spain and his debt settlement. He hits her and she is terrified of what he will do to her. In the heat of the moment, he suddenly falls on his knees. Quickly, she grabs a sledgehammer lying on top of the toolbox. She hits him. Not once, not twice, but several times. After a few seconds, he's completely still, facing the floor while a pool of blood forms around his head and becomes bigger and bigger. Not long after the discovery of the body in the plastic top, both the top and its content were taken to the Institute of Forensic Medicine, where an autopsy of the deceased would take place. Forensic pathologist Hans Peter Hogan was working that day and he remembers the case clearly. I got involved with the case when the police contacted the Institute of Forensic Medicine and told that they had a so-called butcher's tub, a big tub, 
a plastic tub with a lid and it was on its way in to us with a dead body inside that they wanted examined. That was how it started. We were gradually told more about the case. But what arrived at the institute was the big butcher's tub like a big box made of thick plastic. It came with a lid on. We took the lid off the butcher's tub. A butcher's tub is a plastic box where the butchers store pieces of meat. It was a bit difficult to get the lid off. As it turned out, it had been taped shut with double-sided tape all the way around the lid. But as we looked into it, we could see there was a dead body. From the clothes, we were able to determine that it was a man. He was lying on his stomach with his legs tugged up underneath him, kind of crossed. He had a plastic bag over his head. It looked like it was a white bag. There was also a blanket underneath him. It went up the sides and partly covered him. In the bottom of the tub there was quite a bit of fluid. It was probably body fluids coming out from the dead body. It smelled pretty awful. If a body is left for a while, it slowly begins to disintegrate. Everything that's living decomposes once it dies. This goes for plants, animals and humans. The decomposing process slowly begins. With time, the body, in this case, begins to disintegrate bit by bit. This means the body can easily break if you try to grab it. Therefore, you have to be careful so it doesn't seep through your fingers. You don't even really get used to the smell. Of course, as a forensic pathologist, you've been exposed to the smell numerous times. A decomposing body smells no different than other things that decompose. Rotten meat, rotten plants or vegetables. It can smell quite disgusting. That's uh, what a rotten body smells like. It's the meat that rots. The tub was a meter or so tall. I don't quite remember the height of it, but we had to get the person out of it. He looked like he was pretty heavy. With the help of the police and the crime scene technicians who were constantly uh, taking photos, we managed to tilt the tub to the side, but not quite so much that the body would just slip out. We slowly managed to get the dead body out of the tub and onto the autopsy table. It took multiple people to do it. By the time the person was lying on the steel table, we managed to lay him on his back while the crime scene technicians constantly photographed uh, what we were doing as we slowly undressed him to get a better look at the body to examine it. At the front, we couldn't see any changes other than those caused by the decomposition. But on the back, we could see uh, that the head had multiple lesions. The scalp skin was broken as if it had been hit by a blunt weapon. Uh, whether he had fallen or hit his head was unknown to us at that time. 
but there were multiple wounds on the back of the head and on the top of the head as well. About the lesions on the man's head, as I understand it, there are two fractures, or at least two fractures. What did you look for there? We were looking at the details of the fractures to see whether any bone tissue had been pressed in. Had it cracked or was it just small bone fissures? The reason why we did so was to see if we could find any evidence left from the weapon, which was maybe a tool that had been used to inflict the injuries on the person. The injuries could have been inflicted by him falling and hitting his head against something, but he could also have been hit with something, like a metal pipe, a baseball bat, a branch, a hammer and so on. We couldn't tell. This is why you conduct a thorough examination of the bone fractures to see if they could have been inflicted by a specific type of instrument. And what did you find out? We found out uh, that it looked as if, uh, we weren't certain, but it looked as if it could be a big hammer, like a sledgehammer. But we were not able to rule out if it could have been a metal pipe or a baseball bat. But that was what we were leaning towards. And there was no doubt that he has been killed? You didn't think he could have tripped and received these uh, fractures? No, it definitely looked like a blow to the head. But again, it's hard to determine due to the conditions of the body. The difference between a blow uh, to the head and a fall is the way in which the brain is affected. For instance, if you fall and hit your head on the right side, you can see lesions and Uh, bleedings on the opposite side. On the contrary, if you're struck on the right side of the head, you usually don't see any changes uh, uh, on the other side of the brain. However, it was difficult to see due to the decomposition. But something suggested that the brain had not been affected in any way, which points to a blow to the head and bone fractures. It indicated it had been struck. We performed an autopsy of the deceased and followed the usual procedures for an autopsy. We do that every time. The body had to be thoroughly examined externally as well as all the organs. Even though there were only detectable lesions on the head, all organs must be examined. There could be something. We don't want to miss anything. When the autopsy had finished, Uh, we were certain that uh, the injuries inflicted to the head were the cause of death. Everything was documented and a long, a thorough walkthrough known as the autopsy report was written up. It was made and so were additional examinations such as a toxicology report uh, where toxicologists have scanned the body uh, for um medicine, alcohol, and toxins. Sometimes the person might have fainted and had fallen and hit his head down, for instance, a set of stairs because uh, the person has suffered a stroke or a heart attack. We have to be sure of our findings so that we can say, no, 
he did die from head injuries. We know that the person did not have a heart attack or an aneurysm. We can say that for certain because we have examined him for it. Blood stains, evidence of intense cleaning, and documented injuries to the deceased head. These were some of the signs that something criminal had definitely taken place. The crime scene investigators in the apartment were done with their examinations and every evidence pointed to one person being responsible for the murder, the owner of the apartment, a 43-year-old woman. The Danish police now had to bring her back from Spain to be prosecuted in Denmark. Chief Inspector Kurt Krau led the investigation and he was ready to jump on a plane and bring the suspect home. Our suspect, the mother, was in her apartment in Spain. We were hoping that she would travel back to Denmark shortly after so that we could arrest her in Denmark and avoid having to go through the whole extradition process, which can be quite complicated. But on the other hand, we knew that the daughter and mother spoke regularly and it would be difficult for the daughter to keep the investigation secret from her mother. So we agreed that we would have her arrested in Spain by the Spanish police. The next day, we received the warrant for her arrest. It was sent to the Spanish authorities, and they reacted immediately. They picked her up and charged her with murder. Afterwards, we received her preliminary statement via fax. She admitted it was her. She said that she had caused his death, but also said it wasn't premeditated. With this new information, we could begin the process of getting her extradited from Spain. However, we wanted to talk to her before her extradition, so a colleague and I flew to Alicante the next day and drove to the little town where she was jailed at the time. We weren't able to fully interrogate her, as you just can't go to another country and interrogate someone, even though it's a country in the EU. So we have to have a preliminary conversation with her where she expressed a desire to come clean about the case and go home as soon as possible. We went back to Denmark and waited for the Spanish authorities to extradite her for prosecution in Denmark. In the meantime, we began conducting other interviews in order to map the victim's whereabouts up until the time of the crime, as well as the woman's whereabouts. We also wanted to find out how she had managed to withdraw money from different banks to cover her travel expenses. Four months after she had been arrested and jailed in Spain, she was released into Danish custody. We flew to Alicante to pick her up. We brought her back with us on the plane, and as soon as her feet touched the Danish ground, she was arrested and charged with the murder of her husband. We drove her to the court, where she was taken into custody and put in detention. I was very excited because I wanted to interrogate her and ask her why she killed her husband. A couple of days later, I drove up to the jail with a local colleague to pick her up. I began questioning her and she explained what had happened in detail and she said that at first living with her husband had been fine but they've had financial troubles and were struggling with a large debt settlement. In March, when she told her husband that she wanted to go to her apartment in Spain, apparently he became furious and began to hit her and she fled into the living room and he followed her. She ran into the kitchen where she saw an open toolbox with a sledgehammer inside. And instinctively, she picked up the sledgehammer and hit him a few times in the head. I'd read the autopsy report, and the interesting thing was that the Department of Forensic Science had discovered that the cause of death 
was multiple lesions all in the back of his head, which meant that her explanation that she had been defending herself against his attack didn't add up. But as I never asked questions during interrogations, I just let her tell her side of the story. She told me that after she knocked him down with the sledgehammer, he was lying on his stomach in the kitchen and she lost it. She continued to hit him repeatedly in the head with the sledgehammer. In these types of cases, rage can sometimes take over and it ends up being overkill, so to speak, which is what happened with her. So it is not unusual that he was hit multiple times in the head. She said that she sat down on a chair in the kitchen and looked at the man lying in a pool of his own blood, but she couldn't bear the sight. So she covered his head with a plastic bag and she dragged him into the hallway so she could move around the apartment without him being in the way. She had gone up to bed with him lying in the hallway and when she got up the next morning, she was browsing through a local paper where she saw an ad for a company close to her apartment that sold these butcher tops, which are large plastic tops for the meat industry. She picked up a rental car and drove to the company where she purchased a large top that she believed the body would fit into. She put it in the van and during the night when everybody was fast asleep, she transported the top up to her apartment via the lift inside the apartment building. In the apartment, she managed to lift the body into the top. She put the lid on and taped it shut. She dragged it into her bedroom and hid it under furniture and boxes. Already then, I was becoming a bit skeptical because the man weighed over 100 kilos and he wouldn't have been easy to just pick up and put in a top. I began to wonder if she really did all this on her own. In a case like this, you have to try to work out the motive for killing him, whether it's just a regular domestic homicide, so to speak, carried out as a crime of passion. Or did she kill him because she was jealous? Maybe a third person was involved. We began investigating whether she had recently entered a new relationship, which could indicate that the murder was the result of a domestic triangle. Although there was nothing to suggest that that was the case, it was always in the back of our minds. Another motive we were looking into was financial. By contacting the bank and looking through her transactions, we found the withdrawal of 20,000 Danish kroner from his account, around 2,800 pounds. Some might say you don't kill a person for 20,000 Danish kroner, but we also know that murders have been committed for as little as a beer. In other words, you cannot eliminate the 20,000 Danish kroner as a motive. One essential factor to me was trying to figure out why on earth she would lend the apartment to her daughter, knowing full well that her husband's dead body was lying in the bedroom. She explained that, and... This made perfect sense to me. While they were in Spain, the daughter had met this Spanish boyfriend and she had begged and manipulated her mother to borrow the apartment until the mother caved in. All parents know what this manipulation is like, especially from daughters, at least I do. So in the end, she caved and thought, well, the body's in a plastic shop with the lid taped shut. She just made her daughter promise not to enter her room and go through her things, and a promise which she had hoped that her daughter would have kept. But she obviously couldn't have predicted that there would be a heat wave in Denmark which resulted in body rotting, which caused the smell to seep out through the lids of the plastic top and spread throughout the apartment. She didn't know that would happen, so even this part had an explanation. We asked her multiple times what she had planned to do with the body because it didn't make any sense. I asked her if her plan was to wait until the body had completely decomposed and then to flush most of it down the toilet and 
carry the rest out and put it in the waste disposal container or buried it in the woods. She was baffled and said she didn't have thought of anything along those lines. She didn't have anything planned and she just postponed it as long as she could and pushed it away from her mind. Multiple fractures on the back of the head indicated that the man had been knocked down from behind. The sledgehammer was in the toolbox in the home, and therefore there were no signs that could indicate that the murder was premeditated. After the murder, the woman explained that she had put her husband into the plastic tub and hidden it in her bedroom. She got rid of all the evidence, such as the murder weapon and some bloody blankets somewhere in Germany, before she proceeded to Spain in a car with her daughter. She is back at her apartment. There are several people present that she has never seen before, and they are all staring at her. The camera is turned towards her, and the red light on the side indicates that the camera is on. Suddenly she's back. In her mind, it's Thursday, the 17th of March, 1994, and she's having a fight with her husband. Even though it's a long time ago, her actions are still crystal clear in her memory. To be completely certain that the woman had committed the murder all by herself, without an accomplice, the investigators had to look at every possible scenario. Chief Inspector Kurt Krau remembers the case very clearly. We interrogated her to get details about how she had managed to get him into the top. I still couldn't make sense of it. We therefore decided to do a reconstruction, which I've done before in many previous cases. You reconstruct the entire crime scene. So in this case, we made her apartment look exactly how it looked on the 17th of March 1994 when she killed him. The reconstruction was done almost a year after she had killed him. It took place at the actual crime scene, and we used a similar plastic top and a rubber sledgehammer to simulate the reconstruction. Present at the reconstruction were the woman and a local police officer playing the victim. He was approximately the same size as the deceased. A defender and a prosecutor were contacted so it could later be used in court. If you don't do this, you can't use the evidence from the reconstruction in court. We had a forensic scientist present too and the crime scene investigator filming the whole scene. When the reconstruction started, we used a technique where you let the suspect explain what happened without interrupting them. In the beginning, the woman spoke with some uncertainty about what had happened on the 17th of March 1994, but gradually she went back in time in her head to the day in question. She told us the argument was about finances and that she was leaving for Spain. She instructed the actor, the policeman, on how he was supposed to follow her into the kitchen where she would grab the sledgehammer and show us how she killed him with it. And then came the interesting moment where she showed us how she managed to put him into the plastic top. In the report, she explained how she, with the help from a broomstick and a mopstick, had managed to maneuver him onto the edge of the top and then scoop him into the top. It didn't make any sense, but there she was. She knew exactly what to do. The top was in the hallway. She stood with one leg on either side of the policeman who was lying on his front, bent her knees, grabbed him by the armpits and lifted him about 40 centimeters up in the air onto the edge 
so that his chest was resting on the edge. And she crossed the sticks underneath his chest so that they rested on the edge of the top. First from one side, then from the other. She stood there for a second and looked and then moved down to his feet and she would grab the sticks. I had told the policeman playing the victim that he was not getting into that shop. I would stop it before that happened. I waited to see what she was going to do next. She kneeled again like some sort of weightlifter and she grabbed the sticks, kept kneeling for a second and then she got up in a split second. In less than a second, he was in the shop. She stood up and clapped her hands and said, job done. None of us had expected this to happen so fast, but she had just proved her explanation was right. That was how it had happened. And our theories about a third party being involved had now been ruled out. Nothing suggested a third party. It was only ever her and her husband. Present at the reconstruction was not only Kurt Krau, but also forensic pathologist Hans Peter Haugen and crime scene investigator Bent Hytholm Jensen. And they both clearly remember how surprised they were at the woman's ability to get the man into the top. It was quite impressive and overall convincing. I hadn't thought beforehand that it would be possible, but this little lady did it. We saw how this little woman managed to get the big man into the butcher's tub. And I must admit, it worked quite well. Later on, she must have carried the butcher's tub from the entrance to the bedroom. How that happened, I don't know. But if she could do one thing, I guess she could do the other thing as well. What was it like to see it play out? Yeah, how was it? I see it was, uh, well, for me it was convincing because she did exactly what she had told us. And I understand the police had their doubts about the story. As I'm not a policeman, I did find it to be borderline unbelievable. But again, I was completely convinced that that was how it had happened. So I would say I'm happy the reconstruction took place and that I was part of it as uh, it made sense. And now I knew how he got into the butcher's tub and I could now understand why he was lying on his stomach in the tub. We thought it was a lie, but it turned out it was possible. It was very well conceived, I would say, considering she wasn't that big. What were you thinking while you were watching it? I thought it was incredible. I think everyone who was present did. She was, how uh, do I put it, she didn't seem very affected by it. On Wednesday, the 21st of July 1995, the woman was found guilty of murdering her husband and hiding him in the top in her apartment. The trial was widely covered by the media And according to the tablet newspaper BT, the woman was relieved when the verdict was given. She said that it wasn't until now that she felt free. During the trial, the woman had confessed and explained how the two of them had been arguing about their finances. When the husband slipped on the kitchen floor, the woman saw an opportunity to grab the heavy sledgehammer from the toolbox and hit her kneeling husband in the back of his head. 
criminal defense lawyer Mette Gritsdage has had quite a few cases involving serious crimes. Even though she didn't work directly with this case, she explains her thoughts on these types of cases and specifically around the censusing of unethical treatments of bodies. Today, the main rule in the Danish legal system is that committing a murder will result in 12 years imprisonment. But of course, there can be aggravating or mitigating circumstances, which means then the sentence can be either higher or lower. Aggravating circumstances could be if the murder was extraordinary barbaric and the victim was suffering, whereas mitigating circumstances could be if the victim has been abusing the perpetrator for years before the killing. If the perpetrator did not only kill the victim, but after the murder also treated the corpse indecent, the sentence can go up to 13 to 14 years, depending on how badly the corpse was treated. But the rule of thumb is still 12 years. This is what it's like today. However, years back, you would only get 10 years in prison if the victim was your wife, your husband, girlfriend or boyfriend. You sort of got a spousal discount. So if you were to murder someone, murdering a relative rather than a stranger would actually pay off. Why don't we have that rule in Denmark anymore? Well, at a certain point, the Supreme Court had to consider whether it actually was fair to receive a shorter sentence for murdering your own wife rather than your neighbor's wife. The Supreme Court decided that this legal position was not reasonable and had to be changed. I think the majority of the Danes agree with the Supreme Court because it doesn't really make any sense that you get this discount depending on whether you kill inside or outside your own family. The city court convicted the woman who committed this murder 10 years in prison, as it was standard back then. She appealed and in the high court, the defense lawyer tried reducing the sentence to less than 10 years due to mitigating circumstances. He argued that the couple had had a turbulent life and they had had many disagreements for a long time. However, the high court decided this wasn't enough to reduce the 10 year sentence. Would you say that the fact that she hit the body in her apartment and ran off to another country were aggravating circumstances? And do they affect her sentence? Yes. This case isn't only about murder, but also implies the paragraph concerning indecent act with the corpse. Because she hit the corpse in her apartment after the killing and went on holiday. Of course, this is aggravating circumstances. However, it wasn't severe enough to increase the original 10-year sentence. The case was closed almost a year after the body had been discovered. Chief Inspector at Unit 1, Kurt Kau, and his team were able to close the investigation and move on to other cases. But he will never forget the case. When the reconstruction was over, we prepared the case for the prosecution. A few months later, on June 21st, 1995, the verdict was announced. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison and the case was closed. After five years in 1999, she was released. A lot of people don't think it's right that you can get out so quickly, but for me, it's completely okay. I'm not a supporter of long-term prison sentences for people that aren't a threat to society. But for people with uh, clear psychopathic tendencies, I believe we have a right and a duty to keep them locked up forever so they don't do anything again. But this woman will 
most likely never end up in the same situation again. I think it's completely okay for her to get out as fast as possible in order to get re-socialized back into society. The woman had explained that the fear for her own life and a convenient murder weapon in a toolbox were the reasons that she became a murderer. She has now been re-socialized back into Danish society. That is how our legal society works. When a criminal has served their sentence, they are set free again. We have to be able to give them a new chance to live as a lawful citizen outside of the prison. I've actually spoken to a person close to the deceased man in this case, and the person has chosen to forgive the convicted woman today. Thank you to Chief Inspector at Unit 1, Kurt Krau, Forensic Pathologist Hans-Peter Hogan, Lawyer Mette Gritsdage, and Crime Scene Investigator Bent Hytholm Jensen for your stories. Death in Denmark is produced by Bauer Media and True Crime Agency and has been brought to you by Crime Monthly Magazine. If you enjoyed this story, please tell your friends and rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And get your true crime fix in Crime Monthly magazine, out in shops now. Next week in the final episode of Death in Denmark, The Random Victim.